you may want to wait on that as uh, <laughs> until you hear, as someone said in the first service, you were gone all summer and that's, that's the best you came up with? <laughs> so welcome back. Um, good morning. Uh, my name is Thomas and uh, the pastor here, been on sabbatical for several months and excited to be back. Uh, some of you may know if you, uh, knew, uh, if you knew me from before um, <laughs> that I did, I did not just say good morning, great men and women of God. And that's not because it's not a good morning, and it's not because I have changed my opinion on you being great men and women of God. It, it's kind of uh, when, you, when you go away for a while, when you take a season of rest, you put everything down. And then you start asking the question of Jesus Christ, what do you want me to pick back up? And it's kind of like Susie's message last week where she said, you know, is, is this something that has washed out or is it something that's in the blood? And so I, I'm just letting you know, hey, even though I'm back from sabbatical, it's not like everything got figured out. I don't have all these answers. I'm, I'm still searching. So that, that little aspect, good morning, great men and women of God, is just something I'm just, I'm kind of uh, seeking the Lord about just to see what's next. So, uh, so good morning, buckaroos. <laughs> I'm trying that one out. No. Um, we're going to be, so thanks for the grace on that. We're going to be in Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, Genesis, and then this amazing story of Exodus. And we're going to start in chapter 2 of that book. And let me, let me tell you how we're going to kind of get there today. I want to, I want to talk a little bit this morning about a guy I've been reading about in, uh, over the summer was reading about him. And his name was Henry Nouwen. He was a Dutch Catholic priest who had an amazing academic career. This guy taught at Harvard. He taught at Yale. He taught at Notre Dame. Probably one of the most foremost writers on spirituality of the last century. In fact, many people contend that the word spirituality came to our language through him. But in the early 1980s, he felt like Jesus was speaking to him about going in a new direction. He didn't know what that was. He tried a few things. And then he happened to be in Chicago at a silent retreat. And he met up with some people from this community called Larsh. Larsh is an international group of communities for adults with intellectual disabilities. And so the more he kind of spent time visiting with some of these people and in some of these communities, he found something in the simple solidarity and love of this community that he just couldn't find at the top of his academic world. He found home. So he was invited to and he accepted and moved to a Larsh community in Canada. But it's there... As one author recounts, that he began to hit a wall. You see, suddenly he was part of a community where the vast majority of its core members would never have passed the admissions process for any of the universities he taught at, let alone be able to pick up and read many of his books. Unlike years past, Henry could no longer hide behind his academic and publishing successes. The core members of his new community weren't impressed by any of it. In fact, it really didn't matter if he was their new priest or their new janitor. To them, he was just Henry. But who was Henry to Henry? You see, when you no longer have what you had or you no longer do what you did or have people say and think about you what they used to say and think about you, who are you? I experienced this on my sabbatical. I, I, I essentially stepped down from myself. I, I didn't have what I had. 
I wasn't doing what I did. I didn't have people around me, my community, to say and think what they had said and thought, and I started to wonder, who am I? I think Moses experienced this as well. You see, we're in this series in the book of Exodus called The Journey from Slavery to Home. And we're revisiting one of the most epic movements in human history where several million Jews journeyed from slavery in Egypt to a new home. And the problem they're going to discover is, the problem that we discover is, sometimes it's easier to get out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of you. And that's because this exodus from slavery to home is really about two journeys. You see, we believe that God wants to bring people out of external slavery. Jesus told us to proclaim good news to the poor, to help captives find freedom, to release people in darkness, to set prisoners free, to build bunk beds. Moses was sent to carry out that cause. But God also wants to bring people home out of an internal slavery, the slavery we have to our own sin, the bondage to our own brokenness, the lies that drive our lives. He wants to bring us home to who we were created to be, home to himself, home to our true self. God cares about this journey too. And so today, when we get into this story, I want us to see that the journey out of Egypt begins with the journey of bringing one man home. We're going to be at the end of Exodus Exodus chapter 2, and then we're going to be in Exodus 3 a little bit too, so if you're there. Now to catch us up, just to bring us up to the story, you remember this. God's people, the Hebrews, were living in captivity in Egypt, a land that was not their home. Now Moses was born a Hebrew, but to save his life, his mother sent him down to be given up and raised in the house of an Egyptian pharaoh, royalty. So here's this guy who has Egypt in his heart, but he's got Israel in his blood, and he really doesn't have a home anywhere, it seems. But he did have a call. There was a call in his life to deliver people from slavery to home. And one day, if you recall, we talked about this last week, he passed this Egyptian taskmaster beating on a Hebrew. And at this moment, he's had all he can stand, and he can't stand no more. And his worlds collide. And he hauls off, and he decks this guy, and it actually kills him. Now, here's what's interesting. 1,500 years after this event, there's a man named Stephen who is being arrested and tried on the charge of blasphemy. The religious leaders of his day felt that he was speaking blasphemy. What was he doing? Well, he was just telling people about Jesus Christ who had risen from the dead, but what they felt like he was saying was blasphemy against Moses. So he's on trial for saying something bad about Moses. This is how revered Moses is going to become. And in this middle of this kind of trial, which he's going to end up losing, Stephen tries to explain, no, 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 I'm I'm connecting the dots between Jesus and Moses. So he does this beautiful uh, explanation, but there's this one line that gives us some insight that we didn't have. Speaking of Moses, he said, he saw someone being wronged and came to the man's defense. He took revenge on behalf of the man who was being oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. He thought his kinfolk would grasp the fact that God was sending him to their rescue, but what? But what? They didn't. Now Moses might have murdered this man without thinking. Stephen's giving us some new insight into the story. Moses might have just popped one off, but as soon as the deed was done, he thought, okay, well, this fiery act is going to launch a revolution. Who's with me? No one is. 
No one joined his cause. So now he's standing there. The Egyptians are hunting for him. The Hebrews have rejected him. And God? God failed. God failed to back his play. Where were you, God? I, I... So Moses tapped out. I'm done. I'm out. He abandoned this cause. He ran off to live in what we now call Saudi Arabia. He found a wife. He had some kids. Found a little bit of work shepherding. And that's where he stayed for 40 years. Moses no longer had what he had. He had no more wealth, no more titles, no more access to the royal court. He no longer did what he did. This is the prince of Egypt. He used to pick up goblets filled with rich wine, and now he follows around sheep around all day picking up that. And Moses no longer had people say and think about him what they used to say and think about him. He's no longer Moses the noble-looking, Moses the prince, Moses the powerful. Now he's just Moses the murderer, the runaway, the traitor. Something interesting when Moses and his wife had their son, this gives you some insight into where this guy's mind is. He names his son Gershom, which means banished. So every time for 40 years when he calls his son to come and help him, he is reminded that he is a man without a home. God doesn't care about the Israelites in slavery over there in Egypt, and God doesn't care about me over here in exile. Now, last week, Susie shared that Moses kept getting involved in other people's battles. Do you remember that? Whether it was a, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew or whether it was a, a bunch of women who were being denied access to a well, Moses kept getting involved. And the reason, Susie said, she said Moses couldn't help it because he was a freedom fighter. It was in his blood. So let me ask you this question. What happens to a freedom fighter when they don't fight for freedom anymore? What happens to your soul when you tell yourself for 40 years God, that God doesn't care about it? That God doesn't care about you? When you no longer have what you had or you do what you did or you have people say and think about you what they used to say and think, who are you? I want to give you a moment to talk about that question with Jesus. The way we do that at Pulpit Rock is we invite uh, Nate to come up and, and to play some music for just a moment, but just to put a question up. And this question is a doorway into a conversation for you to have with God or with yourself. Have you ever lost what you had, lost what you did, or had people change what they say and think about you? Who were you? I'm going to give you a minute to think about a time like that in your life.
Some of you may have very vivid thoughts and memories about times like this, maybe some painful times. There may be some of you who are uh, looking at this going, I, no, that's never happened to me. Spoiler alert, it will. Because these things are all transient. They're not stable enough to endure forever. There's always going to be times in our lives where we're going to lose things we've had, we've lost things that we've done, or have people changed the way they look at us. So who are we then? This is Moses. He no longer had what he had. He no longer did what he did. He no longer had people say and think about him what they used to say and think. So here he stands in the sand as the decades just drift by. Nothing's ever going to change. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we find out something was at work behind the scenes. During those many days, these many days of waiting, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew now Moses. People cried. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew, and now, Moses. What's interesting here when you hear this is that God heard and remembered and saw and knew his people in slavery, and God heard and remembered and saw and knew Moses in his exile. God was about to bring these people and Moses together on a journey from slavery to home because God cares about the cause, but he also cares about the called. I want you to hear that. God cares about the cause, but he also cares about the called. Look at chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why is this bush not burned? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, some of you with eagle eyes that are reading that text, you're saying, hey, wait a minute. It said that the angel of the Lord was the one that appeared, but then it was God that talked. I, I think to me, this is a, I don't know, this is a reminder that God likes to use messengers. Like God is calling Moses, but he, he needs to have his messenger do it. So it's like, uh, I'm the angel of the Lord. I'm in the fire. Okay, Moses looked over here. Hey, he's looking over here. Okay, move out of the way. Hey, it's me, God, Moses. We have God on line one. So Moses says, here I am. And God said, don't, don't, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you were standing, it is holy ground. And then he introduced himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You know, the symbol of the burning bush has for long, long, long centuries been a symbol of the people of God who were in the fire of Egyptian captivity, yet they were not consumed. Even today, if you were to walk into a synagogue or, or, or maybe a Jewish holy place or even some place like where the Israeli uh, army trains, you're going to see images of the burning bush. It's this thought that surrounded by the flames, we are not consumed. Why? How is this bush not consumed by the fire? That's what Moses went over to see. 
And the answer is, the bush is not consumed by the fire because God is there. Just like the Israelites have not been consumed by their captivity because God was with them. And just like Moses has not been consumed in his exile, he hasn't been disregarded, he hasn't been forgotten, his dreams haven't been denied because all along God has been there. And I, I want to just encourage you this morning, when we are crying out to God, though it may seem like he does not care and does not see, he does not know, he is there. And he suffers with us, with us, and he aches with us, and he groans with us, and he's working behind the scenes when all we can see is the sand. That's the message of the I am for Moses. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey and now behold the cry of the people of israel have come to me and also i have seen the oppression with which the egyptians oppressed them and moses is like well hey it's been 40 years but better late than never this is great i am so glad god that you you are showing me that you care what is your big miraculous plan for how you're going to get millions of people rescued verse 10 i will send you i will send you to pharaoh you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. My plan to rescue a nation out of slavery and bring them home is you. But Moses said to God, listen, what's his first question? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Four decades in the desert have given Moses a lot of time to think about that question. Who am I to Pharaoh? Who am I to the children of Israel? Who am I to Yahweh? Who am I to me? I mean, 40 years ago, maybe I was that guy. Now? Do you remember Henry Nouwen? I, I started with him in the, in the beginning. He had stepped away from all that he was, this kind of this world where he was, where he was known, into a place where people didn't really care about any of his achievements. And, and he's trying to rework through that question, who am I? And as he began to work through that question, he kind of came to a conclusion that all people tend, or most people or all people tend to answer the question, who am I, using one of three sentences. I am what I have, I am what I do, or I am what other people say or think of me. I think there's a lot of truth to what he's observed there. I, I do think there are times, I think for me, I, I tend to really center that question, I am what I do. For other people, it might be, it's about what I have, or I've achieved, or maybe what other people think about me. How would Moses have answered these questions? Well, if I am what I have, I've lost all I had, so I'm nothing. Well, if I am what I do, I mean, I went from a palace to uh, the plains here, I just tend flocks, I guess I'm a shepherd. If I am what people say or think of me, uh, they either say that I'm a murderer or honestly, more likely, they don't say anything at all. I'm, no one remembers me. How can Moses be sent to deliver other people when he doesn't even know who he is? How can you and I? But do not forget, God heard and remembered and saw and knew his people, and God heard and remembered and saw and knew Moses 
This was not just the rescue of a nation. It was the restoration of a soul. God was not just bringing a people home. He was bringing Moses home to himself. And this is what he wants for all of us. And this actually answers a question that I have had about this story ever since I first heard it decades ago. When I heard this story about the burning bush, and I have always wondered this question, why, God, if you have the ability to speak in such a powerful way, do you want to send Moses? Wouldn't it be much more effective, save a lot of time, instead of 10 plagues, we got like a 50% of one? If you just showed up in the, in the palace, right in front of Pharaoh, a burning bush. They didn't even know there was a bush there. And you show up, and you just start speaking. Don't you think Pharaoh would sign those release papers ASAP? But God wanted Moses. He didn't need Moses, but he wanted him. Because this journey was about saving a nation, and in the process, saving a man. God wasn't done with Moses. So how does God answer Moses' question? Moses says to God, who am I? Verse 12, God said, but I will be with you. Once again, if you've been at Pulp Rock any length of time, you, you understand that this, this crazy thought that God rarely answers the questions that we ask. But he always answers the questions that we should have asked. So who am I? I will be with you. That's not an answer. And in fact, this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you're going to serve God on this very mountain. Moses said to God, well, if the people of Israel come to me and they, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, hey, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what's his name? Then what do I say? Moses said to God, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Okay? Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. He's giving you a lot of stuff to say. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Again, God doesn't always answer the question we're asking, but he does answer the question we should be asking. And see, Moses is asking a question about identity. Who am I to do that? God is responding with dignity. See, identity answers the question, who am I? Dignity answers the question, what am I worth? How could I be used? Moses, I am will be with you. It's not about what you have. It's not about what you do. It's not about what others say or think about you. I am the I am, and I am with you. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, I am the I am, and that means that you bear my name. It means that you bear my weight. I have sent you. You have a dignity in you, Moses, that is not earned and cannot be taken away, though you've been standing here for 40 years, because it is ascribed by me. That's what you tell them. And beloved people, I want you to hear this today. You are alive because God wanted you. It's not because he needed you to solve some big problem or crisis or he's been waiting for you to show up. He wants you. If you can grasp that, if you can accept that I am, I am here because God wants me, then it is an invitation to you. It's an invitation to trust, to discover, to come home to your true self. See, it's this dignity. We talk a lot about identity here at Pulp Rock, and we still do, but behind that identity it is the dignity, the dignity that defines our identity. We are made in the image of God. So is everyone else. 
And it's this identity that leads all of us in our own ways to pick up the mantle of Moses, to alert everyone everywhere, pharaohs and rulers, neighbors and co-workers, the beat down, bedraggled, and brokenhearted that our God does care and he does reign. And through our words and actions, we want to show that. That God reigns over the external journeys of slavery in our world. He sees and he cares and he's sending us to bring people home. But he also cares about the internal journeys of slavery. He sees the lies, the addictions, and the sins, and he wants us to come home. And I like the way that Tyler Stevenson frames this for me. The world is not mine to save. Not. But I can serve the mission of the God who has already done so. But as you get stirred towards something and you say, I want to step into this, I just want to remind you that God cares about the called as much as he cares about the cause. He cares about you as much as he cares about it. So let me close this morning with this, and I'll kind of show you how this interfaces with me. I identify with Moses. I think the fact that he was just always getting mad at people for not doing what he said. I really identify with that. Not y'all, just the people in general. I am sure that his anger that day was boiling at the oppression of his people, and I'm sure he felt the best path was for him to haul off and punch slavery in the mouth. How did that work? It didn't. It didn't achieve the goal. The anger of man rarely achieves the righteousness of God. But he wasn't done. God called him back home to a dignity. God still cared about the cause, but he said, Moses, I want to do something with you. This summer, my wife and I came to a realization. This summer, both my wife and I realized that for far too long, we have hated religion more than we have loved Jesus. If you've been around Pulp Rock the last few years, you could probably say, oh, yeah, I picked up on that. See, the slavery that boils my blood, what gets me going, are the millions of Christians trapped in religious traditions, judgmentalism, and burden. The captivity that focuses more on what we're doing for God than what God has done for us. The bondage so many believers are stuck in because of bad leadership. Pharaohs and Pharisees who lead with law and not grace. Good-hearted people locked into bad structured systems that keep them from the journey with God. I hate it. And I want so bad to haul off and punch it in the mouth. And that doesn't always achieve the goal. It can actually wear you out. Because there are too many taskmasters and there's just not enough fists. And continuing to punch religion takes its toll. Earlier this year, I, I, um, I was experiencing some burnout in my life before sabbatical. Um, and I have this life coach that I talked to and he warned me, he said, Thomas, I really think that you are experiencing some burnout. And I said, there's no way that I'm experiencing burnout. I did a sermon series at our church on rest, so... covered that base before he even brought it up. He's like, well, you know, hear me now, listen to me later. I think you are dealing with burnout. And I was. One thing I needed this summer was some time in the desert. Not four decades. But just some time to tend flocks and be reminded that God cares about the cause. He also cares about the called. God says, hey, I, I hate that stuff too. And as we are sent out to our neighborhoods, our classrooms, our city, and our world, we go with a God who says, I am the I am, and I am with you. And I am the I am, and I am for 
you, you and I. And this is how we begin to move from slavery to home. I want to invite the band up uh, to, to uh, do a song with us that's going to give us an opportunity to consider something. Here's what I, I want you to consider. Maybe you've tapped out of some external journey. Maybe there was something that you were pouring your life into and you said, yeah, I, this needs to be dealt with and God, you know it too. And, but for some reason, maybe no one joined the cause or maybe you got tired of punching or maybe you just went about and For whatever reason, you said, I'm just kind of done. Or maybe you've tapped out of some kind of internal journey. Maybe you've become enslaved to something or some lie or some way of thinking or some sin and you, you feel forgotten. You think, you know what? That, that could have been me a long time ago, but God, you, didn't, you don't want to do anything here. What I want you to consider as this song is going to play is this. Does God's promise to you still stand? Could he do it again? Is it time to come home? Because when you no longer have what you had or do what you did or have people say and think about you what they used to say and think, who are you?
together and sing this with us. I've seen you move, you move the mountains, and I believe I'll see you do it again. Made a way where there was no way, and I believe I'll see you do it again. Never.